This episode may contain triggers for some members of the listening audience. All right. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Billy D's podcast. I am absolutely thrilled that you are here. If you've never checked out our program before, we are primarily an interview and a commentary podcast. You can find the Billy D's podcast pretty much anywhere podcasts are found. Including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, on down the line. On the studio line with me today, I have Barbara Legere. Welcome to the program, Barbara. It's, uh, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Sure, absolutely. Now, Barbara and I are going to be talking about some sensitive topics. We're going to be talking about, uh, you know, mental illness, addiction, and we're also going to be uh, talking about uh, the subject of suicide. So if any of these topics are a trigger for you, we certainly don't want that to happen. So we wanted to give you an opportunity to say, well, maybe this isn't for me. Uh, On the other hand, uh, a lot of these topics, suicide in particular, uh, in my opinion, a lot of people's opinion need to be spoken about without the hesitancy, without the uh, uh, taboo sometimes that's attached to it, because all it does is it puts these topics into the back room and it makes them harder to deal with. And in the bigger picture, that that is what we, we don't want to happen. Would you agree with that, Barbara? Absolutely. Barbara is an author. And the book that she has is Kevin's Choice, a mother's journey through her son's mental illness, addiction, and suicide. When Barbara Legere's son, Kevin, begged for permission to die, she refused. Kevin had spent half of his life struggling with addiction while his single mom battled courts, health care companies, rehab facilities, and mental health professionals in an effort to protect him. As their relationship strained and his drug uh, drug abuse and use progressed, Ligere was forced to accept and love Kevin as he was in their limited time together, two years before his suicide. Now, in uh, the wake of all that, uh, obviously, Barbara dealt with a lot. Um, she had some of the guilt that a lot of times parents feel in these situations. We're going to talk a little bit about that, how she got through that. And for parents who have borne witness to overdoses, arrests, addiction treatment, and incarceration, and even death, Kevin's Choice is a raw and intimate memoir of a mother's grief that shows it's possible and necessary to go on, even amidst the unimaginable. I I suppose that's got to be, you know, uh, anytime uh, the death of a child comes up. It's it's never a good thing, but I I suppose that in in most situations you can kind of reason your way through it if it was an accident or something like that or an illness, but uh, I, the, the the suicide seems to have an edge that really cuts because it, it, there's this feeling that is it, why why couldn't it have been stopped? Uh, is that correct? Do you want to talk a little bit about about that? Yes, that is correct, and I've talked to many parents who, including myself, who feel that they should have done something different, that they failed their child, that they didn't get them enough help. Um, Typically, we did. We, I always tell parents, if you loved your child unconditionally and did everything you knew how to do, you did, you did enough. 
Yeah. Um, there are some things we just simply can't control. And I did feel, um, I did feel guilt when Kevin first passed because he used my firearm. And mm. that is something I could have controlled, but I learned that, um, he would have found another way yeah. and I had to, I had to let that go. As, as horrible as it, 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 it sounds for me to say this, I, I've known a number of, of instances in my life where people have, have taken their own life and they, they seemed determined. I, I can't really put it any other way because we usually associate determination with achieving something positive. Uh, but they were, uh, they managed to get past all the hurdles in terms of what their family tried to help them do and other things. And I, I don't know why. But there is just sometimes you cannot stop something like that. Let's get some background about you. Um, where are you from? Uh, are, you, are you from where are you at now? And are you from there? Or how'd you get there? I am in Southern California and this is where I'm from. I've been here most of my life. Is Southern California everything it's cracked up to be? I mean, all, all I hear is how great it is there. <laughs> no. <laughs> so many people are moving away from California because of the high cost of living and yeah. people have an idea that everything's Hollywood or it's it's not like that at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've been hearing that, too. Um, and, uh, you know, that's the case in, in a lot of areas around the country that were once considered, uh, you know, the best places to be. And a lot of the places that people avoided are now becoming the places to go. So it's interesting exactly. how that happens. Uh, did you have any brothers or sisters? Uh, did you have like uh, what kind of a family? What kind of a uh, uh, were you an athletic child? Were you a student? Uh, how, how did you how would you describe yourself as a child? I'm the oldest of three. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. In fact, my sister helped me raise Kevin and her and I still live together in our family home. We inherited it after mm. our parents were both gone. But I was definitely not an athletic child unless you call um, swimming in the ocean. That was about yeah. my only athletic thing. But I was very, I loved English. I loved writing. I loved creativity when mm -hmm. I was growing up. Well, swimming can be good exercise. A lot of people say they're going swimming, but basically they just sit by the pool. But if you actively swim, uh, it's it's actually really good. Now, here in Ohio, there's only several months out of the year that you can do that uh, when you're outside anyway. So how old were you now when Kevin was born? I was 30. Okay. So that's about average yeah. these days. You know, it used to be somebody, uh, people would have start to have kids right away. But anymore, I would say 30 is about average. So you're probably kind of with the times on that. Um, what was he it like? It wasn't planned. It was not a planned thing. It was a, something that happened that I wasn't planning. And at first, to be honest, I was very scared. I didn't yeah. know if I wanted to be a mom, but it turned out that he was the best thing that could have ever possibly happened to me. Yeah. I hear that so often. Uh, sometimes the unplanned things are sometimes the best, the best things. What was he like as a child? He was very smart. He was very, uh, he was a little bit mischievous. He basically was a happy child for the most part. Mm -hmm. He had friends, he made friends easy, but there was always something that caused him to have dark thoughts and to feel depressed at times, even yeah. as early as age five. Yeah. And, and that was very hard to watch because I, there was no reason behind it. Mm -hmm. And we often look for a reason. And unfortunately, 
you know, mental health issues, depression, anxiety, you don't have to have a reason. It's part of your body chemistry. Yeah, that's correct. We hear that a lot. Um, a lot of people say, well, what do you have to be depressed about? You got this wonderful life. It's it's not a mood. That isn't what depression exactly. is. You know, exactly. it's, it, it's a process and it can be a very dangerous one. And um, when did you start to notice? Obviously, you said very early on he had some uh, mm-hmm. emotional issues. Um, at some point, though, you had to notice that something was chronic. Um, when did that yes. start, when did that start to, to happen? That actually started in the third grade, and he had had a, a serious accident that required him to have a surgery on his leg and be in a wheelchair for a while. And that mm-hmm. that's what really started it for him. He was left out of a lot of things, yeah. and he just felt very lonely. Um, his teacher at, actually pointed out to me that he wasn't participating in class. She knew he knew everything, but he mm-hmm. just wasn't you know, raising his hand and that, um, she thought that there might be depression. Mm -hmm. So I definitely paid attention to that and I had him evaluated. And yes, uh, the child psychiatrist did agree that he had a lot of anxiety and depression. You mentioned, um, as, as he got older, obviously substances, uh, started to enter the, the, the picture. Um, so how did this escalate? Well, when he started high school, like many kids do, which today is a very dangerous thing to do, but um, he experimented with a few drugs and drinking. And then when he was in uh, his sophomore year in high school, he was on the wrestling team and some of the guys there introduced him to harder drugs Mm -hmm. like cocaine. And then he met um, three young people that I met. They were at my home. They seemed like wonderful kids and I had no idea that they were using heroin but they introduced it to Kevin and he loved it from the first moment he tried it yeah and that was the beginning of 13 years of heavy drug use and a lot of lot of issues yeah before we get into some of what happened with with your trying to get help through the healthcare system and some of the other things let me just say that here in Ohio where I am from I would go as far to say that things have gotten better in the last few years in terms of people having an understanding of a lot of times how mental health and addiction, how those two things can converge. And one of the reasons why I say that there's a better understanding now is because unfortunately, the situation has been so bad in Ohio. If you're listening to this around the country, you may not be aware Ohio is one of the hotbeds uh, for for opiate and other types of addiction. Uh, And there's a couple of good documentaries online that you can find as to why that is. But one of the reasons why the stigma attached to mental health and one of the reasons why so many people now are involved in that is because just about everybody has known someone um, who has gone through this. And it's kind of like an unfortunate thing. That's some, just something about the way uh, we are as human beings. When it's somebody else that's across the street, it's it's not our problem. Uh, the whole closer it hits to home, the more we start to have empathy for it. And uh, the problem has been so chronic here in Ohio that there is no ignoring it. It's it's not over there. It's it's right with you. So uh, there's there's more resources available now. And actually, I work for one during the day. Uh, I work in the marketing department of uh, of a nonprofit. 
And uh, we're, we're, we're trying to raise awareness because there's still a lot of stigma uh, around it. And in some cases, you just go somewhere uh, and, and, and just mention, you know, uh, addiction or any of those kind of things. And you used to get, you know, a bad vibe. But now people are, yeah, what, what, what do we need to learn? You know, it has really changed. So um, your story obviously goes back over a decade. Um, and this would have been in the early days of what people were starting to piece together in terms of what was happening across the country. So you want to tell us a little bit when you approached the health care system and, and some of these other institutions um, and you told them about your problem. How did you present it? Um, how did how, how did that go? Well, um, Kevin, the very first time he went to a drug rehab was after being arrested at age 18. And he was court reported to one. Mm -hmm. And it happened to be a very good one. The program he was put in had mental health care and drug support. It had basically everything. And it was a wonderful program. Mm -hmm. And it did help him for a while. After that, each time that we approached trying to get help, you had to have really good insurance to get in somewhere, yeah. or you had to pay an extreme amount of money, which I never had, but I did do everything I could to, mm-hmm. uh, I put myself in debt basically to pay for several of them. But what I found was the way he was treated, even by doctors was so cruel and unfair. Mm -hmm. I even had a doctor and I write about this in my book say to him, well, he said it to me in front of Kevin and my sister. I don't really want to help your son because he's just going to die anyway. Addicts Mm -hmm. always do. And I was shocked, but I found out that because of the epidemic that was happening, that wasn't an uncommon, that was not uncommon. Mm -hmm. Um, People were seeing someone with a heroin addiction as a bad person, as a person that was wasting their time in the medical field. Um, And then mental health care was much, much harder to come by. They're just, you know, there's thousands of drug rehabs in California. We're one of the centers for people send their family members here. But as far as a mental health facility, there are very few places where you can go. For example, if you're having a psychotic breakdown, um, they may hold you for 72 hours if you're a danger, a danger Mm -hmm. to yourself or others. But beyond that, there's nowhere where you can go to get long-term care. Not very many places. I recently found one and I'm just so thankful to know that it exists. But we just had a very difficult time. Um, If he was using drugs, he couldn't get mental health care or it wouldn't work because the meds wouldn't work. And when he wasn't using drugs, he was much, much worse because the drugs are what kept him calm. But they also created the problems that landed him in jail and several really um, crazy situations that he got himself in due to being in drug psychosis. Sure. That's one of the areas that I think we have improved. Um, A lot of times these two things, we call them co-occurring conditions. Uh, You have a mental health problem and and the the addiction develops because of people trying to self-medicate. 
So just uh, what we refer to in the industry as detoxing. Detoxing will get somebody out of that crisis where they might be overdosing. Uh, but then you have the underlying conditions that cause that to begin with. And it has to be very comprehensive. And that's, uh, that's where I, I, I can't speak about California. But I, I, I know in certain situations across the country that 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 awareness has has come about. I actually spoke to uh, a judge here a while back. He has been uh, one of the one of the I would say pioneers in this area in terms of the the judicial system. When you haven't uh, hurt anybody but yourself, you haven't been trafficking or anything like that. The only person in your very early in, in your encounters with the law, and it's it's just been you that you've been put at risk. His preference has to be uh, to get those people help. Now, that doesn't mean that you, you don't get punished. That doesn't mean that there's accountability because that's what I always get. And that is not what people are. That's not what is happening. But uh, to give people help when it'll do the best, when it's in the early stages, is key. He told me that in, with heroin um, addiction in particular, uh, in his group, with his heroin group, with the, the one that he has been helping here in Ohio, that some sort of child abuse, and a lot of times it's sexual abuse, is, is as high as 80% with addicts. So this idea that people just sat around and partied themselves into addiction is, I mean, I'm sure it happens, but that's not the path to addiction here in Ohio where it's been a chronic problem, and I'm sure it's not the case across the country. Everybody's got a, a path to how they got there. Uh, so that's something I think that we should have a lot more awareness about. I don't know if you want to maybe follow up on that. I agree with you completely on that. And I really like this judge you just mentioned. We have someone here that is has a program that's helped so many. It sounds very similar. But in Kevin's case, that was the number one question asked by anyone in therapy from the time he was a child until he was an adult. Were you abused as a child? And as far and he always said no. And he, he and I were very open and honest. He told me things I didn't even want to know. So I do believe him that he was never abused in any way. He did have other traumas as a child. He did see something traumatic when he was only six years old and insists that that was not playing into it. But people don't choose addiction. They would not choose to put their lives in the situation where you wake up every morning and know that you're going to be deathly sick if you don't get another dose and you need to find the money to go out and buy it. And it just becomes your life. It's a a never ending cycle. Sure. Once those patterns in the brain start to develop, um, it's it's really a struggle. You, you don't need the next fix necessarily to get high. You need the next fix not to be sick. Um, exactly. Yeah, and and that's something that here again is in terms of awareness. This idea that people are perpetually in this condition because they're addicted to euphoria is, is not the case at all. We had, we. No. Did, we did mention that uh, we were going to talk a little bit uh, about suicide. And uh, let me just mention, too, that in the United States, anyway, there's a new suicide hotline, which is 988, just those three letters, 988. And um, uh, I'm, I, before I hand it to you, I just want to mention one or two quick things. If you feel that someone is behaving in a way where they might do some sort of self-harm, by all means, say something. I, I know that a lot of times people are hesitant because they feel, well, if they ask, are you 
planning on hurting yourself, that that might put them that much closer to a position where they're going to do it. Just about all the studies that I am aware of says that that's not the case. It is far more dangerous to ignore it. If you ignore, if someone is displaying signs of self-harm and you ignore it, that is a thousand times worse. By all means, say something. Now, you have to do it tactfully. Uh, if you take them aside and say, hey, look, I noticed you're not, you know, you've said a few things that are just a little off. Are you okay? Are you, you know, considering hurting yourself? That can probably save someone's life. Uh, the other thing is that don't be afraid to talk about uh, a suicide, whether it be with your uh, friends, family, or whatever. Uh, there's such a stigma attached to it. Um, I've actually known people that um, did not put the cause of death in an obituary because they were afraid of what people were going to think. And that, 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 it, that should not be. You know, suicide is something that happens when people aren't in a good place mentally. It's not like they gave up or anything like that. When you're in that place, um, it can be a very dangerous time. And um, that's really what it's all about. And the idea that you can't even speak about it does not help the situation. So with that being said... um, when the suicide happened, I don't know how you want to talk about it or how you want to present it. Uh, what was its impact on you? And um, how it, that's such a I, I, it's such a difficult thing to ask. I know you want to present it in some way. You, you, your book is about it. Just to give us an idea of what you cover in the book. How do, sure. how do you how do you deal with that? Well, first, I just want to say thank you for everything you just said, because it's 100 percent true. And if you can imagine not saying something to someone who felt so lonely and desolate and desperate and hopeless, the difference between not saying anything and saying, hey, I care about you, what's yeah. going on? Anyhow, thank you so much for bringing that up oh, sure. because it's so important. Um, Kevin told me that he was going to end his life. He told me that for many, many years. He made several attempts um, to overdose himself. Mm -hmm. And either I found him in time or it just didn't work. So when it happened, Mm -hmm. he hadn't mentioned it in a while, but Mm -hmm. when it happened, when I heard the gun, I knew, and I can't say that I was surprised. I was still shocked. And of course, in that moment, my entire life changed. The whole trajectory of my life changed. Everything about me changed. Mm-hmm. I, I came out of my shell for one thing, and now I, I'm speaking to you. I'm speaking to people all over, and I wrote two books so far. I just want people to be aware. I don't want any mother or any father or any sibling or best friend or spouse to know what it feels like to have someone take their life and just simply no longer be a part of your life. Yeah. It is so devastating and painful. Um, as you said, people are afraid to talk about it. And they're also afraid to talk to me about it as a grieving parent. I put it in Kevin's obituary. He, he would want his death yeah. to be used to help others. And that's something he always told me, that he wanted... He wanted to help others. He, if he lived, he, that's what he wanted to devote himself to. Yeah. Um, so I think that he would be very proud that his life was not completely in vain. I know many people that 
have said that his story motivated them or helped them in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very lonely place to be. And I much rather have someone ask me about it or bring it up. And, um, my, my worst thing that you could possibly say to someone is that it's a selfish gesture. It was selfish yeah. of him to do that to you. He didn't do it to me and it was mm-hmm. not selfish. It was in a last resort to relieve himself from the pain that his life had become. Yeah, absolutely. Um, with all, all that being said, I know you cover a lot of ground in the book. Um, what do you hope that, uh, the reader takes away from it? And it, it may not, you know, I would encourage people to read a book like this, even if you haven't had a child or a family member go through this, because, uh, the scope of human relations and the scope of family dynamics, uh, it, this, this addiction thing can really teach you a lot. And uh, someone's journey like this can really give you a deeper understanding in, 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 into what can happen to people when they get depressed. Um, with that being said, what would you hope the reader takes away from it? I would hope the reader takes away that this could happen to any family, that the scariest three thing a parent can say is not my kid, that it will not happen in their family because yeah. of the way they raised them. Um, I want them to see the struggle in the real people I wrote about in the book and also the struggle that parents go through. I mean, it is a nightmare. And I belong to a support group of hundreds of parents that have lost their children to overdose and some of us to suicide. And it is a very difficult way to live. And if we had a little more compassion and support from our neighbors and our friends, it would help. Because it's a very lonely road and you just can't imagine what it's like to wake up every day wondering if it's going to be your child's last day, if they're going to accidentally overdose or what's going to happen to them that day. Yeah. So those are the main things I would want. What message of hope would you have, you mentioned, you know, in families, Um, if you have a family member or if, if you yourself are battling addiction and, and you don't feel that you can get over that hump. What, what, what message of hope would you have? The message of hope would be if you um, can communicate and go to someone and say, I need help, please help me, help myself, help me. Um, that's the, the number one step. And to want it, you can often achieve it. Yeah. Sometimes that's the hardest thing is to get to the point where you want it, where you feel like you're worthy of it, where you feel like you can actually accomplish it. But um, support from family, um, coming alongside your children rather than pushing them away. Mm -hmm. Tough love is just very, um, in my opinion, an outdated way of handling things. People need support and love and something to hope for. Yeah. And I think those things are really important in anyone with mental illness or um, addiction. Yeah. I know a, a number of people in the, in the uh, mental health and addiction recovery services industry. And it, it is true sometimes that um, good recovery stories are sometimes not that common. However, they do happen. And recovery is one of the sayings that we often use in this part of the country, in in this marketplace, is uh, recovery is possible. 
And it may not be the recovery that you expect. It may not be the recovery that you want where everything is just uh, pleasant and, and wonderful for the rest of your life. But there is a better life if you recognize the problem. If, you, if you're sitting there saying to yourself, I might have a problem. If you're saying that, you probably do. And there's no better time to get help than right now. And depending on where you're at in the country that, like I said, there's more resources available now that there have been in a long time. One of the agencies that you can reach out to is uh, NAMI. And uh, if they can help you directly, they can probably point you in the right direction for some local uh, places that may be able to help you. And again, if you are contemplating doing the absolute worst in terms of self-harm, the National Suicide Line is 988. And once again, that's 988. Uh, A good hashtag to follow if you're on social media is Recovery Posse. That's a hashtag Recovery Posse. And a lot of people are sharing their stories. I'm I'm one day clean. You'll sometimes see that. Or I'm a week clean. And you have to keep in mind, that's how you start. All you, you know, you, you have to worry about today and then go on to the next one. Um, so I, I really appreciate, you know, you and people like yourself telling your story because uh, the idea that you're alone with this is something that you should not be feeling. And, and I think that's probably one of the things that you're trying to trying to stop that this is a this is something that people go through every day. Yes. Again, the, the name of the book is Kevin's Choice. A Mother's Journey Through Her Son's Mental Illness, Addiction, and Suicide. The author's name is Barbara Legere, and you spell that L-E-G-E-R-E. Where can people uh, find your book? It is online on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And can I just quickly mention that I have another book that will be coming out soon. It's called Talk to Me, I'm Grieving. And that book is to help people that are grieving all types of grief, not just suicide loss. Yes. Because we don't talk about it enough and people yes. don't really know how to help. Well, that's a that's a great topic. And, and that grief is probably one of the, the, the most understood uh, things that people go through. So that's a, that's a great topic. And be sure to touch base with me when you when you get that ready to roll out. Where, where can people find you on uh, social media? Um, my first and last name dot com will lead you to my le- website, which will lead you to all my social links. I'm on, I'm everywhere, you know, all the typical places, uh-huh. Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. <laughs> okay, great, great. Oh, you're on TikTok. I'll have to check that out. <laughs> yes, but that's not going so well. <laughs> <laughs> are you on I Twitter? I have too many followers that are not really interested in my topic. Again, uh, Barbara Legere is the author, the book, Kevin's Choice, A Mother's Journey Through Her Son's Mental Illness, Addiction, and Suicide. Barbara, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You're doing great work. Oh, well, thank you. That's I talk about it, but I got to tell you, I, I know a lot of people who are on the front line, a lot of the, uh, of the, of the providers, uh, a lot of the social outreach where you have people who are homeless and, um, you know, sometimes they don't realize that you're trying to help them. And uh, these uh, wonderful people go out there and try to help them a lot of times being resented in the process and they're not making a lot of money. I mean, these are people that are really on the front line of making the world a better place. And and, uh, I I really always want to shout out to those providers because 
you guys are doing the hard work and we appreciate yeah we appreciate you and thank you my name is billy dees you can find me on twitter at billy dees real easy to find and you can tweet me if, you, if you're nice i mean i hope you're nice <laughs> Sometimes they're not, but that's the way it goes, right? And you can find the Billy D's podcast pretty much anywhere podcasts are found, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and with friends over at Good Pods. If you're not familiar with Good Pods, Good Pods kind of has that model of what Good Reads did for independent books. And uh, they're doing that for independent creators with podcasts now. And that's simply fine. You can find it in the App Store, Good Pods. So uh, that's a good place to check out some uh, independent and really good podcasts. There's some talented people out there so do check that out barbara thank you so much for being on thank you Uh, you're very welcome and we will talk to you again next week I'm Billy Dees and host of the self-titled podcast, The Billy Dees Podcast. We are primarily an interview and a commentary-based podcast featuring authors and creators talking about their craft, advocates for community issues, and myself and an array of co-hosts discussing current events. There's no partisan ranting and raving going on here, just great content. You can find The Billy Dees Podcast on your favorite platform and on Twitter at Billy Dees. Thank you, and I hope you listen in.